A reading from the book of John, uh, chapter 1, verses 19 through 34. And this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had sent him from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with the water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming forward toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, this is he whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for his purpose, for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. The word of the Lord. One of the videos that got a lot of buzz this week was former NFL quarterback Eli Manning showing up at the Penn State walk-on football tryouts with a disguise. So he had a professional makeup artist uh, make him look unrecognizable, a bit younger, and frankly, a bit weirder. Uh, and he shows up at the, at the football tryouts. And it, it was a funny video because, you know, at the start, there's nothing that stands out about him. They're timing how fast people could run, and a pro quarterback is not necessarily the fastest in the team, and they're having these various things. But then, then they give him the ball, and as soon as he starts throwing, it's clear that he's skilled. And by the end of the video, he's throwing these enormously long, accurate passes that are making people wonder, you know, who is this guy? Now, why did that video become so popular? And and there are so many videos like it where there's celebrities, professionally disguised, showing up and and with their talent, um, not being recognized but eventually revealing who they are. Or there's versions of people who are not necessarily famous but highly skilled, and so the version might be that you have some... Um, you know, some, somebody who's good at sort of uh, calisthenic kind of weight training things disguised as an elderly human being, then showing up with teenagers in the park and doing all these uh, strength stunts. Why do we like those videos? I suspect there's a number of reasons, but two things stand out to me. One is human beings love greatness. When somebody is really great, really skilled, really remarkable, there's something about that 
uh, when somebody does something well that stirs our spirits. So seeing greatness is there. Uh, but there's also, because of that, a problem, which is because we want to participate in greatness, we either want that greatness for ourselves because we want the admiration of people, or we want to connect with those who are great or institutions that are great so that somehow we might reap personal benefits from greatness. And what that means is there's a tendency in people to fake greatness because we so want it, we will exaggerate it. And one of the, well, here's two byproducts of that. One is imposter syndrome. Some of you more competitive types will know that you show up in places where you really want to be with those who are great, but you're constantly thinking, I'm going to get found out. I don't belong here. And at some point, it would be nice if everyone just acknowledged that 95% of the people were thinking that as well, but we don't. But the, uh, the other issue is that we create contexts where life winds up being inherently disappointing because we want to exaggerate and highlight a kind of greatness that isn't necessarily there. Reality will often come out, and it means not just that um, the world can be disappointing, but, but people are disappointing. So, so leaders, political leaders, religious leaders, influences when there's a moral failing or a scandal. We thought this person was somebody great, and then it winds up that, that they're not. Um, but it could also be maybe there's somebody that you're drawn to who is, who is great in a certain field or with a certain skill, but they're not a great friend. So you think that meeting them, befriending them, will give you access to greatness, and, and it gives you access to the greatness of what they could do, but, but they could be a disappointing person <laughs> to try to be relating to. There are various ways that we may find ourselves disappointed with the reality of who people are because we're all flawed. And therefore, I think one of the appeals about those videos, on the one hand, we love greatness. When somebody's skilled, there's something wonderful about it. But there's also something about the kind of story to, to think that somebody's actually better than we first assumed, that our misjudgment was wrong because we so much... Uh, misjudging the other way. We find some person that we think this person is great and then, and then we wind up constantly disappointed. We're looking at John's gospel, the first 12 chapters from now until the spring. And one of the things John, who writes the gospel, is telling us is that the story of Jesus is one of those where people, as he went, didn't really recognize just who he was. But, but the greatness of who he is became more and more clear over time. And John says, I'm writing this because if you start to see that, believe it or not, that's going to be life-giving for you. It's going to bring a, a certain kind of greatness, a certain kind of life, a certain reality, a certain hope into your life. You will have participation in that. So John writes this gospel so that we would see uh, through the ministry of Jesus just uh, how great he is. Our attention is drawn there. And so now just for any of you uh, to make sure that you don't get confused, so we're looking at uh, 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 the gospel written by John, sometimes called John the Evangelist, John the Apostle. But in the scripture reading, he talks about John, but he's not talking about himself. He hasn't woven himself into the narrative. There's a different John, John the Baptist. So John the Baptist, one of the great figures of the Bible, um, in the passage that was read, he is baptizing and John, who writes this, doesn't give us details about him, but we know from the other Gospels, he was sort of a, 
an interesting figure. He wore this camel-haired cloak with a leather belt, and he ate locusts, and he lived in the wilderness. And, and you get the picture that he was this dynamic being that there he is in this ministry of baptizing, and large numbers of people are drawn to him. So sort of the religious authorities want to know, well, who is this guy? And that's the question they come to John the Baptist with in verse 19. Their question is, who are you? And you can see their categories, but John's initial answer is telling. He says, I am not the Christ. Why would he even think that that's what they were asking about? But in the first century, those who had been studying the Bible had an expectation. Uh, the Bible as a whole is, is talking about one day God raising up someone who will come as a Christ, as a Messiah, as a savior figure. So they come and they say, who are you? And the first thing John says, I'm not the Christ, just in case that's what you're wondering. Okay, are you the prophet? Because Moses said after him, God would raise up a prophet, and there have been various prophets, but, but they were waiting for somebody even greater. Are you that person? John says, no. Well, Elijah, if not greater than Moses, was equal or close. Elijah never died. He was taken up in a chariot. So in the first century, there was an expectation, maybe he's going to return first and prepare the way. Are you Elijah? And John says, no. And what's interesting, they have an interest in who John the Baptist is because of the influence he's having. But what's clear is that John doesn't want the attention to be on him. John is drawing their attention away from him to Jesus. And in that, we find something for us. So the question, who are you? Okay, none of us are John the Baptist. Uh, maybe none of us will have a similar kind of high-profile role in God's story. But, but how we answer the question, who are you, is telling. And John the Baptist here, while none of us uh, will be him, and while his role was very unique, the way he answers it gives a signal into how he understands God and, and what he has seen, even at this stage, of the greatness of Jesus that has changed him and there are things we could learn in that. So in this series, the sermon series, it's called uh, Come and See and Live. Um, just as we're now in the third sermon, introducing, set, setting up the themes, next week we'll get into watching Jesus on the ground in his ministry. But as we're making our way in, I'm just going to talk about those two things today. The invitation to come and see and the implication that you will get live from that. So uh, first I'm going to begin, uh, Come and See. That's what John the writer is doing. He's trying to, to draw us in. So we'll meet in upcoming weeks human beings who meet Jesus and then they go tell their friends, come and see the person I just met. John the gospel writer is doing that. He's saying, come and see who this Jesus is. But John the Baptist, his ministry is preparing the way so that we would be able to see. So when the authorities want to know from John, who are you? He tells them who he's not. But then in verse 23, he answers who he is. He says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So in saying, I am the voice, he, he puts himself in the prophetic tradition. Prophets were those who God showed things. They saw things or they heard things, and then they went and announced them. So John is saying, I'm in the line of Isaiah. I am not the prophet, but I am one of the prophets like Moses or Elijah. So he's a voice of one calling, 
make straight the way of the Lord. So in the wilderness. So there's significant imagery here for those of you familiar with the Moses story. They're now in the wilderness. Um, if you're not familiar with it, Bible study brings out a, a lot of interesting things here. But his task is to make straight the way for the Lord. So he's preparing the way. Um, so, so that right there tells us the, the Bible is signaling Jesus is not just like any other figure of the Bible. But when he arrives, there's preparation that's needed. So this week, the General Assembly meeting at the United Nations on the Upper East Side. If you live on the Upper East Side and have a car, I feel for you. This is not a good week to be trying to get around that neighborhood. Well, because there's a preparing of the way of these leader figures, uh, you know, the most powerful human beings uh, over these nations are coming here. The preparation doesn't just begin the day they arrive, but, but police for weeks are putting out these metal gates or different blocks. Uh, they're, they're landing them on sidewalks so that when it comes, they can move them uh, to, to barricade certain streets. They're preparing the way for people to, to be able to come in where, where there's great security. This week, I was with a guy who was talking about uh, the inconveniences in the city, and he said, there's not a plane in the sky. And he pulled out his phone, and he showed me an app. And I had no idea what I was looking at. It was an app showing flight patterns. I've never seen an, so this is an amateur pilot that flies around New York City, and he's aware at, at, at different, you know, levels normally where the commercial planes are and where the other planes are, and he's telling me, look, and I have no idea what I'm looking at, but, but apparently he was struck that the airspace was unusually cleared. <laughs> Uh, the way has been prepared in ways that we don't even know. I've lived in New York my whole life. That I never thought, uh, I'm, I'm very aware of the, the on-the-ground problems as I keep having to bike another three blocks thinking I could get through. I never had an awareness that the level of preparation for the General Assembly of the United Nations is that thorough, 40,000 feet up. It's because the meeting is so important. And so, uh, John says, I've come to, to prepare the way, to, to straighten the way. And we could use that language. If you are dating somebody and you're about to meet your in-laws, you might straighten up your place, get that pile of laundry off of your couch, uh, because these are people you want to impress. The importance of Jesus in the Bible, it's not just John who's preparing the way, but, but John is the last, he's a voice connected to Isaiah, connected to Moses, to Elijah, to these various figures. In a way, the whole of history has been preparing the way, and John is the last to say he's about to come. So like when a king arrives and they announce, now he's here so everybody could respond properly. That's John's role. And so um, in verse 31, it's interesting, he says, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. So here's the thing. It's really God who is showing these things. John is a prophet. John proves to be a great figure. What John tells us is that when Jesus came, I didn't recognize him. I thought he might have been a human being like any others. But, but, but the one who sent me, God who called me and gave me this prophetic ministry, is the one who sent me so that the same God will be revealing to the rest of you who this is. So he says, I myself did not know him. He repeats that in verse 33. I myself did not know him. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. The impression we get is God is the one who's showing us these things. Uh, but God, the pattern in the Bible is God raises up 
prophets in the Old Testament, the language changes to apostles in the New Testament, messengers. God shows things to people. And John says, this isn't that I was brighter than anyone and I hadn't studied the Bible more. God sent me with this ministry to baptize and prepare the way, a sign of cleansing, a sign of turning. He brings them out of Israel to the other side of the Jordan, almost like we're going to now come back in uh, in the same way that we did, but we're going to do it right this time. It's a new kind of exodus, a new kind of delivery. Um, and so he says that then God said, I will show you who he is. And, and the dove coming down, the spirit coming down, God pointed my attention to him. And now you're coming and asking who I am. <laughs> My job is to point your attention to him. That's what God wants us to see. And so it's interesting, he says, behold, the Lamb of God. And modern readers, um, if you don't know the Bible background, sounds kind of anticlimactic. Like here's John the Baptist, he's wearing camel hair. He, I always envision him as being loud. I don't know that that's the case. And then now you want to see something even more exciting the Lamb of God. doesn't sound very impressive from a, a modern reader. It's kind of like if you ever saw Monty Python's movie, The Holy Grail, and they're being warned about this creature that protects the cave, and then they show up and this rabbit comes out, and uh, the one warning them says, watch out for the creature, and they say, is he behind the rabbit? And they say, it is the rabbit. Oh, come on. You got us all nervous, and then they go, and then the rabbit is biting their heads off and, and proves to be uh, much more than they anticipated. There's something in reading this where, where there's John the Baptist. I imagine people there, when, when Jesus comes and they say, the Lamb of God, people thinking, well, that's great, but John, we're more excited about you. You've got the crowds. You've got the, you just look more like a prophet. This guy is kind of meek and mild. He looks a little bit like a lamb. John, we want to follow you. And John is saying, God has shown me <laughs> that this is the person to keep our eyes on. And so in verse 34, he says, I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. That claim, there's been lots of great people that God have raised up, has raised up. None of them would call themselves the Son of God. John the Baptist is saying, whatever you think about me, don't be concerned with who I am. Be concerned with who I'm preparing the way for and you could see in John's attitude in verse 27, he says, he who comes after me, the one he's giving the attention for, he refers to as the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. And in the first century, people walking around in sandals with unpaved streets, there was sort of a thing about feet that, uh, you know, it's really humbling to be touching people's feet. And John is saying, whatever you think about me, this Lamb of God, this one who's coming, the one, that, the one who sent me showed to me, I'm not worthy to untie the straps in his sandals. It's actually quite a statement. He's saying, whatever you think of me, this one is so much greater that I am not even, I'm not even in the same category. So don't ask the question about me. Look at me and who I am pointing to. And, and in that sense, there's something we could learn from John, because John was a great figure. But... But what John does here is he's, in the question, who are you, he neither needs to play up his ministry so he could justify it having a greater impact, nor does he seem to be a guy that suffers from classic self-esteem. He's not self-deprecating. Well, thank you for asking who I am, really. You know, I know a lot of people seem to like me, but I'm not that big a deal. Um, 
he is so focused on the greatness of the one that's there that he just straightforwardly answers the question, who are you? <laughs> Don't be interested in me. If you're impressed with me, I'm not gonna be, uh, I'm not gonna take too much credit for that. If you don't like me, I'm not gonna be concerned about that. I want you to see the greatness of this one. And, and, and that makes Jesus different. Because most of the time, when we're around people who are great, or when we aspire to be with people who are great, or people to think we're great, we have a tendency in one of two directions, superficiality or dehumanization. The superficiality is when our pride wants the greatness, so we, we start to think we really are significantly better than others. Um, and if, you, if that's your social circle, there's no real depth, no real relationships, we're just using each other to advance uh, any aspect of our lives, you know that that's not sustainable community. And so superficiality is one tendency, but, but dehumanization being the other, which is once we start to say there are some people who are so remarkably greater than others, our tendency is to look down on certain people and to say as human beings, they, are, they, are, they have less value because they don't have the same skills we have. They can't do what we have. And there's a danger uh, that that could, that could affect any one of us. There's something about the greatness of Jesus that does something different. It doesn't make you proud or it doesn't make you ashamed that you leave. But there's something about his greatness that is utterly unique so that, that you actually recognize greatness doesn't come from, from me and what do I achieve and what I accomplish or what feedback I'm getting. But there's a genuine greatness that allows me to bypass superficiality or dehumanizing perspectives and I could love people who maybe the world doesn't applaud their gifts and abilities. I could, uh, I could try to gain skills and truly become great and accomplish things without being ego-driven. There's a way through that John the Baptist is pointing to, to, to saying, don't look at me, don't look at the people that you admire, but look at this unique son of God and if you come and see that, that kind of transformation will be life-giving. So I want to now pivot into that second part. Uh, John, the gospel writer, again is saying, come and see this. This Jesus is so great that, that a prophet was sent to prepare the way. But the reason he wants us to see this is because when we do, there will be life. And so that invitation to live. So in verse 29, behold, that's the first word John says in that sentence. It's not the same language as come and see, but it's similar. He's saying, look. John is using attention-getting language, and it's calling attention on Jesus. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So if you're not familiar with the Bible, the image of a lamb may be odd. If you are familiar with the Bible, there are a number of points that, that lambs uh, are throughout the whole of the, the Bible. But one of the typical roles they play is a substitutionary role. That, that John looking at Jesus and saying, this is the lamb who has come to take away the sins of the world. Uh, there's this substitutionary imagery we get from throughout the Bible, and one of the, the prominent places is with Moses' story, the story of the Exodus, the story of God looking with compassion on his suffering people, where they were enslaved, uh, their children were being murdered, and God comes with judgment to put aside all of that and to bring his people out. And if you go back to Exodus and you read the story, uh, now known as the Passover story, that name Passover 
is there because the idea was judgment is coming. The, the Egyptian people of that time period were killing the males born to the Hebrew people because they, they wanted to keep them weak. So God says uh, to stop this, now uh, death is coming to every household, the death of the firstborn. And it was this awful judgment to put an end to what was going on. But in God's grace to his people, it's not that he says, you know, but with you, uh, you're good enough or, or uh, judgment, uh, you're so much better than, than the Egyptian people. He says, instead, I'm going to provide a way for you to get out of this, and it's through a substitute. So every household was told to take a lamb and to sacrifice it and to take the blood of that lamb and to put it over their door. And so the idea is this, this angel of death is going to come through bringing judgment and when he looks at the house, it's not that he says, oh, these people are wonderful and righteous and that we don't judge them. He says, uh, there's been a substitute. The blood of a lamb is a signal that death will pass by. Um, Isaiah talks about a suffering servant who goes like a lamb to the slaughter. There's a lot of imagery that's probably informing what John the Baptist is thinking. We don't know exactly what he's thinking. But when he says, behold the lamb of God, he's highlighting the role of the lamb when he says, who takes away the sin of the world. That substitution is in view. Um, and then in verse 32, John says, I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. So here's the one who has the presence of God. So you imagine if you go back to the Exodus story that, that there's this pillar of fire in the night. So in the darkness, the, the spirit of God is leading them. John sees the spirit resting on Jesus, the one who's going to bring us out, the one who's going to lead us forward. And then says something very important, the contrast of his ministry in verse 26, I baptize with water, verse 33, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. What it means is John is trying to point us to Jesus because he's saying Jesus came to take something and Jesus came to give something. And what he's going to take is your sin. And what he's going to give you is the Spirit. And that makes him utterly unique since the beginning of the Bible. So last week we looked at the beginning of John 1 and it ties into the themes of, of Genesis 1. Genesis 1 in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He said, let there be light and there was and it was good. John 1 begins in the beginning was the Word. That Word was the light of life. The light shines in the darkness. When you read Genesis 2, um, you have this picture of, of God forming Adam from the dust, but then God breathes breath into him, spirit. It says Adam became a living being. And then when Adam turns from God in Genesis 3, the judgment, you will return to the dust. Death comes, and the way the writer of Ecclesiastes puts it, the body returns to the dust and the spirit returns to God who gave it. That spiritual reality that human beings, um, from the breath of God, God breathing into us, is what makes us alive. John says, here's the Lamb of God. He comes to take away the sin of the world, the sin that has you guilty of judgment, the sin that keeps you separated from God, the sin that keeps you stuck with shame and humiliation. Jesus comes to take that from you like the lamb, like the sacrifices, like all of these things God has been showing to prepare us, which is that forgiveness is not easy, reconciliation is not easy, cleansing is not easy, but God does it sacrificially coming himself. His very son comes 
in order to fulfill this lamb substitution calling to take our sins away. And then Jesus, and you could read John 14 and 16, where he tells his apostles, I will send the Spirit. So the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit after Jesus is raised, he appears to the disciples, odd thing, he breathes on them. And then he sends them out. And on Acts 2, the whole church is baptized with the Holy Spirit. Jesus comes to take something and to give something. He comes to take away your sin. And it's really hard for us to grasp how profound that is. But, but as you deal with your imperfections, the promise that God offers forgiveness, that God has done something in love for you sacrificially, that is so essential to be sustaining a reforming identity as a forgiven person but one that has spiritual life granted by the grace of God. We didn't earn it, we didn't deserve it. God sends Jesus who takes what we don't deserve to give us, uh, Jesus takes what we do deserve to give us what we don't deserve. He takes the penalty for our sins, he gives us life in the spirit. And what that means is there is a change um, as we answer the question for ourselves. So the, the question, who are you? You know, how do you answer that? Um, and, and what I'm wondering today is, do you answer that in any way connected to Jesus? We tend to answer that question based on who we have been, our life story, or who we very much want to be now. Those seem to be the options, and, and your life story is very important. What, what has happened, your accomplishments, the things you've experienced, all of that, the good and the bad, are important parts of your story. Uh, you are not erased as a human being if you become a Christian. Um, but some of us are so defined by that, we feel stuck in that, that we feel like, well, that's just ultimately who I am. My memory of how I live, uh, whether I succeeded or failed, how people treated me, that's determinative. Um, or there's the sense of who I am now is the the fullness, and so we make demands on people, accept me as I am now, as though who I am is perfect. Christianity assumes growth. Christianity says who you have been is important, but it's not determinative of who you will be. Who you are now is valuable, but don't try to define yourself fully now. The question, who are you? Some of us are answering it from the past. Some of us are answering it from the present. Christianity creates a new, a new possibility that, that the answer that we can give if your faith is in Christ is, I don't fully know yet. The issue is not who you are. The issue is who are you becoming? And that's what's important. There's a life-giving reality that the God who takes your sin and gives you life is working to teach you and to train you and to reshape you. And that's connected to your past it's certainly part of who you are in the present, but there's a future reality that in the same way that we don't recognize the reality of Jesus because we can't see the spirit in him. Uh, what we're told is we don't see the reality of what God is doing in any one of our lives. And so therefore, there's a hopefulness that we have, which is to say, if God is committed to cleansing me, to forgiving me, to changing me, if God is calling me to be faithful in the present and to live life in its fullest, um, but if, if his plan, if his agenda is that I would be conformed to the image of Christ, 
there's a sense in which not only am I not recognizing Jesus enough now, but I really don't know who I will be. And so what John is telling us, John the Baptist, John the Apostle, is keep your eyes on Jesus, the one who's full of the Spirit, the one who is full of grace, the one who is greater than you can fathom or imagine. And the more you see of him, the more God is working in you to make you like him. And therefore, you don't yet know the fullness of the greatness of Jesus. And the implication is, by faith, if you trust him, you actually don't know the fullness of who you will one day be. And so that changes us. That, that, that gives us the ability to be our current imperfect selves uh, and go out and to try again. We don't want to fail, but if we do, there's forgiveness, there's grace. God is at work, and when we learn to live by faith, it changes things. You know, um, Eli Manning, that video of him uh, trying out at, at Penn State was so popular that Jimmy Fallon invited him on the show to talk about the video. And he shared a story there. He said he, uh, so this is Eli Manning, the quarterback. He was in the New York Giants. Uh, he goes into a store, and the guy behind the counter is looking at him. And you can imagine, you know, if, if, uh, if your public identity involves a helmet, maybe you're not always easily recognized. And so the guy says, are you who I think you are? And he says, yes. And the guy gets excited. And he starts calling other people from the store over. He's, he says, guys, come over here. Michael Phelps is in the store. <laughs> I don't know if Michael Phelps is a better swimmer than Eli Manning is a football player. But when when Eli Manning said, I'm not Michael Phelps, the guy looked with great disappointment. Why would you give me the impression? <laughs> and he said, I didn't say I was Michael Phelps. I said, I think I am who you think I am, and clearly I'm not. And his ability to tell that story, I think, you know, when you won two Super Bowls, you could probably leave that not feeling to tomorrow. Who knows? Maybe, maybe that poked at him. But I think if I was Eli Manning, I would be fine being mistaken for Michael Phelps. Uh, it's because he's in a, in a different position here. So, so John the Baptist doesn't need people to think that he's the Christ or the prophet. Um, and neither do we. And, and there, therefore, um, there's a certain level of honesty that we're all called to have before God. If God is a gracious, forgiving God, you don't need to come to God and earn uh, the right to be in his presence. In fact, the more you're trying to do that, the more you're keeping him from doing that work of, of really bringing a deeper transformation to the real you. So the more we're holding on to this kind of fake performance identity, the more we're hindering that gracious work of the Spirit. The, the starting place is in private, in prayer, <laughs> or in those moments where the world is not acknowledging your goodness, and sometimes you're on the other side of the dehumanizing uh, aspect of, of being around prideful people, being able to pause and say, Lord, you know who I am. Um, you loved me. You offer forgiveness, and I have your spirit, and so you are making me something greater, and therefore I can, I don't need to impress these people, and Lord, I don't need to impress you. And, and the more we develop that ability to be ourselves before God, the more comfortable we are, starting maybe in the close relationships, but eventually just going out into the world and being our true selves, of recognizing I don't need to prove myself. I don't need to buy into superficiality, and I certainly don't want to catch myself thinking that I'm better than others because of something that I've accomplished.
There's a reality here that Jesus is so great that as God shows us who he is, if, if you respond to the invitation to join and to participate and to follow, there's a confidence you can have to say, I could go into the world and, and really be who I am um, because God is at work in me and God is going to work through me. And if my life is a witness to that greatness, wouldn't it be wonderful if in our interaction somebody says, boy, <laughs> Uh, the way you treated me, I felt like I had met Jesus Christ. And we could say, well, you didn't. But, man, isn't God good that his spirit is at work, that something of the reality of Christ is coming across through his community? Um, it takes humility. But if we're willing to trust Jesus, uh, there are great things that God will show us and show others through us. Let me pray. Our Father... As we are assembled this morning, we ourselves um, don't really recognize the fullness of who Jesus is, but we want you to show us that. So, so that spirit that you give freely and graciously, use it to open our eyes, to open our ears, to hear the voices of the prophets and the apostles. Show us things. But Lord, um, remold us, renew us. And, and I, I pray that the reality of forgiveness would would deepen in us, that we would have a confidence of your grace and your love, uh, and also a hopefulness in who you are making us to be that would allow us to be genuine, authentic, uh, and to be people who point to something so much greater than we could achieve or accomplish on our own. Do that work in us, in our church, and in the world, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.